Section two of The Luck of the Dudley Grahams by Alice Calhoun Haynes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Section two, December first through December third. Monday, December first. Mrs. Hudson is going, and oh dear, we can't afford it. It is all Ernie's fault, too. How could she have been so careless? This is the way it happened. We have had a visit from Mrs. Beau Gardus. No one would have believed it possible. No one really, I suppose, except Miss Brown and Robin, entirely believed there was any such a person. But today her existence was proven to us. Let me begin at the beginning and explain. Mrs. Hudson has been with us six months now, renting the second-story alcove room, and during all that time, whether the beefsteak was tough or the house cold, she has never personally complained. It has been rather, my friend, Mrs. Beau Gardus, simply couldn't endure such a draft as this. It would give her pneumonia directly. She is a very sensitive woman, what I call a true-blood aristocrat. Is she, indeed? Miss Brown would murmur, antiphonically responsive. Miss Brown is meek and meager and easily impressed. Yes, Mrs. Hudson would continue, swelling visibly under the arrested attention of the entire dinner table for everybody listens when Mrs. Hudson talks. That is what I should certainly call her. Now, a soup such as we are eating this evening simply wouldn't sit on Mrs. Bogardus's stomach. It is too thick. Her stomach is too thick? queries Mr. Hancock anxiously. He is a dyspeptic himself, and very much interested in anything pertaining to symptoms or dietetics. Not at all, answers Mrs. Hudson, slightly ruffled at the misapprehension. The soup is too thick. Whereupon, Mr. Hancock, who has been eating quite comfortably up to the present moment, takes to staring round and round his plate with reproachful sweeps of the spoon, till his wife inquires soothingly, Don't you think we might try some of that glucose bread we saw advertised, Ducky? I'm sure Mrs. Graham would get it for you. The Hancocks are young and recently married. He is a bank clerk with poppy eyes. She is small and plump and pretty. They are ducky and dovey to each other, but they are really nice and considerate, so one feels rather shabby to poke fun. However, to return to Mrs. Bogardus, it was not only what she could not eat, she had a great many opinions as well, especially as to how people in reduced circumstances should live. Mrs. Bogardus thinks that if you can only afford one servant, you should certainly engage two for there is nothing that pays so well as style. She also thought a great many other things. I can't pause to relate them here, and no matter how patently absurd her opinions might be, they were reported as such Delphic utterances that no one dreamed of questioning them. Every fortnight or so, Mrs. Hudson has been in the habit of paying Mrs. Bogardus a call. One always learned at the breakfast table when one of these visits was about to take place, for Mrs. Hudson dressed for them upon rising, no matter what time of day she may have planned to start, in a purple velvet walking suit with white linen collar and cuffs, and a very much crimped blonde false front. Her own hair is decidedly gray. When she goes to church or shopping with Miss Brown or even to the theatre, this answers. It is only for Mrs. Bogardus the blonde crimps appear. Naturally, this morning when Mrs. Hudson descended upon us, in full panoply of war paint, as Hayes expressed it, we supposed she must be going to pay one of her ceremonial visits. 
Both mother and I felt relieved, for the house continued cold despite all our efforts, but we made no remark, and Mrs. Hudson volunteered no information till Rose appeared, rather untidy as to dress an apron, bearing a plate of slightly burned biscuits. Then it began. Mrs. Beaugardus's establishment consists of three maids and an imported butler. His name is Samuels, with an S if you please, Miss Brown. One can judge from that fact alone of the style to which she is accustomed. Yes, indeed, murmured Miss Brown. Now, anything like this, continued Mrs. Hudson, helping herself to a biscuit and weighing it accusingly on extended palm, simply wouldn't sit on Mrs. Bogardus's stomach. She is used to lunching at Sherry's or the Waldorf every day if she pleases. However, I have warned her she must expect to find things different here. She is fully prepared, for I explained everything when I issued my invitation. "'Mrs. Bogardus here!' exclaimed Mother, setting down the cream jug with undue suddenness, while Mr. Hancock, who had been morosely weighing his biscuit in servile imitation of Mrs. Hudson, dropped it into his coffee cup and stared with popping eyes. "'Yes,' returned Mrs. Hudson, evidently very well satisfied with the impression she was producing." "'Haven't I mentioned that I am expecting a visit from Mrs. Bogardus today? "'She is coming to lunch with me. "'It seemed about time I should repay some of her hospitality. "'I hope my little plan in no way inconveniences anyone.' "'Hayes kicked me under the table. "'Ernie wriggled ecstatically. "'Robin sighed and opened wide, shining eyes, "'while poor Miss Brown murmured feebly, "'Mrs. Hudson, Mrs. Bogardus, oh, really?' Mother was the first to regain her composure. We will be very glad to meet any friend of yours, Mrs. Hudson, she said, but I am sorry you did not tell me before. It would have been easier to make arrangements. Certainly I intended to do so, observed Mrs. Hudson, but the fact is, the matter slipped my mind. We looked at one another in open admiration. Could human cheek be carried further? Mrs. Bogardus was coming to luncheon, and the fact had slipped Mrs. Hudson's mind. Gradually, the boarders faded from the room, leaving us to a hurried family council. It was Monday. There was cold roast left over from yesterday's dinner, and a washerwoman in the kitchen. Yet, strangely enough, no one thought of rebellion or complaint. Mrs. Bogardus, murmured Hayes, in a voice nearly like Miss Brown's as he could make it. Mrs. Bogardus, you know, is coming to lunch. And then, for no earthly assignable reason, we dropped into various receptacles along the way and melted and sobbed with mirth. Robin caught his knees in both arms and rolled over and over on the rug, a corner of the tablecloth stuffed in his mouth. Ernie began to caper and frisk madly about, hugging the bewildered and rebellious kitten. I sank helpless on the window seat and hid my face among the curtains. Sh "'Shut the door, Hazard,' gasped Mother, as soon as she was able to articulate. "'They mustn't hear us!' At which the gale began afresh. Somehow the situation struck us as irresistibly funny. "'Well,' chuckled Hazard, weakly at last, "'there's no lark here for me. I shan't meet her. I'll be away at school.' "'And I have a holiday today and tomorrow, because they are repairing the furnaces. How jolly!' cried Ernie. "'Will she come in a hansom?' piped robin or by ferry he meant the ferry and these two modes of conveyance are the most elegant known to his youthful experience yankee doodle came to town riding in a handsome parodied hayes and driven by samuels 
with an s if you please miss brown mocked ernie wickedly children children warned mother we must be serious it is mrs bogardus you know and i had planned cold veal for luncheon not even chicken pleaded ernestine the situation as one faced it loomed portentous the psychic power of that name was not to be lightly evaded well said mother at last with a little sigh we must do the best we can elizabeth will help me in the kitchen rose is never the least good of a monday and ernestine can dress robin and superintend the setting of the table let me see there will be six seven of us eliminating hayes and mr hancock who fortunately do not lunch at home i like an even table so much better let me wait then mother dear volunteered ernie the way i do sunday evenings when rose is out you know she never does serve things properly you would not mind asked mother no indeed not a bit answered ernie frankly everybody will know i am your daughter just the same and i think it is rather fun so it was arranged the menu took a little longer to plan and with cooking dusting and dressing the morning flew swiftly by one might have supposed we were preparing for a royal visit eleven o'clock struck half past eleven robin and ernie in their pretty blue sailor suits flashed down to the kitchen for inspection will she be here soon pranced robin his eyes were bright as stars, his cheeks as pink as roses. I think so, answered mother. Run up to the nursery now, where you can watch from the window. At quarter to twelve precisely there sounded the clatter of horses' feet upon the asphalt. Shall I confess it? Interrupting a hasty toilet, I ran to the window too, and peeped out like any child. A handsome cab, as Robin had predicted, was drawn up before our door. From it stepped a middle-aged lady she was tall somewhat spare attired in conventional black from the distance at which i surveyed her she looked a little just a little like miss brown she mounted the steps and rang the bell the excitement died from my brain a chill feeling of disappointment crept over me was this the phoenix this the invisible mentor under whose dicta our household had trembled for so many months a minute later the sound of subdued greeting floated up from the hall below how do you do mrs hudson how do you do mrs bogardus i went into the nursery to capture robin and give his locks one final dab before lunch should be announced she's just like anybody else he mourned lifting a tear-stained face from where it had been buried in his arm against the window-sill well dearest what did you expect i asked with an absurd inflection of sympathetic woe i don't know admitted bobsey but somehow i thought she would be different then the bell rang and we hastened downstairs in the dining-room the presentations were being made mrs graham allow me the honour of presenting my friend mrs bogardus mrs bogardus mrs graham miss brown allow me to present my friend mrs bogardus mrs bogardus miss brown mrs hancock allow me the honour of presenting my friend mrs bogardus etc Immediately our spirits rose. It was an occasion, after all. Mrs. Hudson felt it, I felt it, Robin felt it. He put out his little hand quite prettily when his turn came. "'So this is the lame boy,' remarked Mrs. Bogardus in a stiff falsetto. "'No,' protested Robin. I don't think he had ever been called lame before. "'I just hop a little, because sometimes my side aches.' "'It is the same thing, my dear,' explained Mrs. Hudson. 
Mrs. Beaugardus knows all about such matters. She sits on two hospital boards and is secretary of the Free Kindergarten Association. Indeed, murmured Miss Brown. With Mrs. Hudson as expositor and Miss Brown as chorus, Mrs. Beaugardus's glory could not wane. She shone upon us, enigmatic, sphinx-like, throughout a somewhat oppressive meal. No one but Mrs. Hudson ventured to mingle in the conversation. Indeed, it was not necessary. Ernie waited very prettily. The croquettes were silently engulfed, likewise the custards. And, despite Mrs. Beaugardus's sensitive stomach, we were encouraged to believe that they would sit. "'My dear, will you play for us?' Mrs. Hudson asked after lunch. "'Mrs. Beaugardus is very fond of music.' It was rather a royal command than a request, but without an e-string, what could one do? Then perhaps your little brother will recite, persisted Mrs. Hudson. What shall I say, Elizabeth? asked Robin obligingly. Suppose you say, my shadow, I suggested. So Bobsey, flushed and honored, standing on the worn Bokaro rug, began, I have a little shadow that goes in and out with me, and what can be the use of him is more than I can see. The ladies sat about the parlor, with their hands folded in their laps. Mrs. Bogardus, with her head a little to one side, as if listening for a false note. Mrs. Hudson, pompously responsible. Miss Brown, meekly appreciative. The funniest thing about him is the way he likes to grow. Not at all like proper children, which is always rather slow, piped Robin in his pretty treble. For sometimes he shoots up taller. Mrs. Bogardus's head tilted just a little to the left. Shoots, queried Mrs. Hudson. Are you sure of that word, shoots? Robin paused and looked doubtfully at me. Yes, I answered, shoots is right. Like an India rubber ball, continued Robin. Mrs. Bogardus's head again cocked towards the left, and a slightly pained expression gathered between her brows. Isn't it plant, my dear? corrected Mrs. Hudson. Since the first word is shoots, it must certainly be an India rubber plant? No, I said, Ball is right. And he sometimes gets so little that there's none of him at all, persisted Robin bravely. Mrs. Bogardus pursed her lips. Well, well, concluded Mrs. Hudson hurriedly. That is a very pretty piece, no doubt, and we are much obliged. But Mrs. Bogardus can't sit here all the afternoon listening to one little boy recite, when she might hear twenty any day she pleased, all with kindergarten training, too. There are some photographs we have planned to look over upstairs, so, if you will excuse us. And the two ladies, rising with majestic accord, swept from the room. It was rather dampening, to be sure, but Bobsy bore it well. Only his lower lip trembled a little as he asked, It couldn't have been a rubber plant, now could it, Ellie? That was his pet name for me. He uses it when he stands in need of comfort. No, honey, I answered, it certainly couldn't when, just at that moment, there was a crash and a hurdle and a smothered squeal in the hall outside, and we all ran out to see what could be happening. I shall never forget it. Down the stairway from the second story, step after step, with a little bump on each, coasted Ernie. Her feet were stuck out straight before her, her arms were aloft, in one hand she bore a pitcher of ice water, in the other a tumbler, while mother's old silver serving tray rattled and rolled ahead. The poor child's mouth was open, and every few steps she would emit a deprecating little squeak, as if to say, I know I ought not to be tumbling downstairs, but what are you going to do about it? Mrs. Hudson and Mrs. Bogardus, who had started to go up in search of the photographs, 
stood midway of the flight, directly in the path of danger. "'Ernie, oh, Ernie!' I cried out. "'Look out! Look out for Mrs. Bogartis!' "'I c, -c can't gurgled Ernie. "'Let her get And then there was a second crash, and a splash, and a renewed series of squeals, and Mrs. Hudson, and Mrs. Bogartis, and Ernie, and the pitcher, and the silver tray, all came crashing and bumping down together in one ignominious tangle. Mother and Mrs. Hancock and Rose came running from various parts of the house. In a moment there was quite a crowd gathered. First Mrs. Hudson was picked up, spluttering and bewildered. Next we rescued Mrs. Bogartis, then Ernie, who still clung desperately to her half-empty pitcher. All dignity, all sense of social circumstance had vanished. The members of the dripping little group glared upon one another, humanly, democratically mad. Here, said Ernestine, thrusting out the pitcher resentfully to Mrs. Hudson, I guess this belongs to you. This was the ceremonial blonde front, which had somehow come unpinned in the melee, and was now floating mermaid-wise in a few inches of ice water at the bottom of the pitcher. Mrs. Hudson sniffed, fished out her crimps, and flapped them scornfully. I shall leave this house tomorrow, she remarked. Children are all very well in their place. It wasn't my place, contradicted Ernie wrathfully. I slipped on the top step and tobogganed. Ernestine, rebuked Mother, I trust you are not hurt, she continued, turning to Mrs. Bogardus, who stood beside the knoll post, ruefully rubbing an elbow. Not being a Christian scientist, nor yet a gutta-percha image, I confess to a few bruises, returned that lady spitefully, after which she and Mrs. Hudson swept on their way upstairs, leaving us at gaze. As if I meant to, brooded Ernestine, I'm not a Christian scientist myself. Why couldn't they get out of the way, I'd like to know? And who's Mrs. Bogardus, anyhow? For the first time, the question was presented to us squarely. We gaped at one another, like so many goldfish. That is so, admitted Miss Brown in a timid voice, after a moment of deep thought. Who is she? And it couldn't have been a rubber plant, chirped Bobsy with sudden easy confidence, because then there wouldn't be any rhyme. It was a hired hansom she came in, observed Mrs. Hancock cheerfully. And did you notice she ate three of those fried croquettes for lunch? Her stomach can't be so very sensitive after all. I shall have to tell my husband. Certainly Ernestine's pitcher of ice water had had a wonderfully quenching effect. But Mrs. Hudson is going, and, as I said, we can't afford it. I was only trying to help, murmurs Ernie, mournfully pulling off one of her long stockings, as she sits on the floor in the middle of our little room. Do stop writing, Elizabeth, and come to bed. There is a smudge of ink on the tip of your nose, where you dipped it in the bottle, and I just know you are saying it's all my fault. Dear little Ernie, how did she ever guess? Tuesday, December 2nd. Mrs. Hudson left this afternoon, despite the fact that Ernie apologized to her very meekly this morning. "'Do you really think I ought, Mother?' Ernie asked. "'Yes, dear, I do,' Mother answered. She was frightened and hurt, and we are all sorry. Ernie made a wry face. "'Perhaps she'll stay, if she knows I didn't mean it,' she said. "'No,' answered Mother. "'I am sure that she will not. It is not for that reason that I want you to apologize.' Apart from the financial inconvenience, I can't regret Mrs. Hudson's decision. In some ways, it will be a great relief. Well, here goes, announced Ernestine. The little Christian martyr bids a last bye-bye to her fond family. And she turned and ran from the room. She found Mrs. Hudson packing. 
You know, I did not mean to tumble downstairs, Mrs. Hudson, she told me later that she said. And I am sorry that I had the picture with me. I was taking it up to your room for Mrs. Bogardus. You seemed to be coming down the stairs when we met you, returned Mrs. Hudson suspiciously. Yes, confessed Ernie. I know it. I had brought up only one glass. I was going back for another, and my foot tripped. Well, returned Mrs. Hudson, evidently quite unmollified. We will say no more about it. For a long time I have felt that a change would be desirable. Yesterday's incident simply confirmed me in my half-formed resolution. I am going from here to stop with a friend for a day or two, till I can look around and get more comfortably settled. I hope you will have a good time, I'm sure, observed Ernie forgivingly. But I wouldn't want to visit her. Mrs. Hudson stared. You, she queried. Oh, my dear. And directly after lunch she left us, and Ernie started in on a wild hunt for the dump cart contract. To look for the contract is Ernie's last resort in times of trouble. It must be somewhere, Elizabeth, she argues, and why not about the house? We know perfectly well that father went especially to get it signed that afternoon. He wouldn't have come away without it. Perhaps it's poked in a bureau drawer, or under the blotting paper on his desk, or maybe even back of the cuckoo clock. And so, though these very places have been ransacked again and again, Ernie proceeded to turn the workshop upside down, covered herself with dust crawling under Hazard's cot, skinned to the tip of her nose on the gas fixture, and tore a great rent in her pink flannel petticoat. About three o'clock, Jeff dropped in, as he generally does on his way home from school, and joined in the chase. "'Do you mean to say you have really lost a border?' he asked, summing the catastrophe with a worried look. "'You can't afford it, can you?' "'No,' answered Ernie mournfully. "'We can't.' I just wish mother would whip me as I deserve. It's awful to love your family, Jeff, and be nothing to them but a misfortune. Perhaps, if we don't let Mrs. Hudson's room soon, we won't be able to afford ice cream on Sundays, and Mr. Hancock likes ice cream better than anything in the world. They will be leaving next. Oh, cheer up, said Geoffrey. You are not a misfortune to anybody, Ernie. If only Uncle Dudley had finished this. The three of us were standing rather disconsolately about the flying machine. You wouldn't have to think of boarders or dump carts or anything like that. You'd be rich and famous, too. Did he ever make an ascension, do you know? Once, late at night, he tried, answered Ernestine. But I don't think it was a success. He only rose a few feet from the roof, and then got tangled in some of the neighbor's clotheslines. Come on, Jeff. Let's look once more in the cuckoo clock. It stands at the foot of the stairs, you know. Father might have stopped to wind it and slipped the agreement into the works by mistake. It buzzed fearfully the last time we tried to make it go, as if it were suffering from some sort of impediment. Entertaining no personal hope in regard to the cuckoo clock, I left them on the landing and ran down to the dining room, where I found Hayes, who had also just come in. He was standing in the window, looking ruefully over the gas bill, which the postman had handed him through the grating. "'So Mrs. Hudson is really gone,' he began, throwing off his overcoat. Well, as far as I can see, that means just one thing. What does it mean, Hayes? I asked, surprised at his tone. That I give up high school, answered Hazard gloomily, and cast his books and cap together upon a chair. Oh, Hazy, I protested. Wouldn't that be rash? We may let Mrs. Hudson's room tomorrow. We may, returned Hazard, but we won't. Then he seated himself astride the chair, his arms folded across the back, his chin resting upon his arms. It's this way, Elizabeth, he began. 
I'm the man of the family, and I mustn't shirk my responsibilities. But you aren't shirking, Hazard, I urged, settling myself in the window seat opposite him. You are working, and working hard to finish your education. It would be a dreadful thing for you to give up now. It would mean a handicap for years, perhaps for life. Some fellows have got to accept a handicap, answered Hazard, and the very fact they know it spurs them on so that in the end perhaps it isn't a bad thing. I've been doing a lot of thinking lately, but I couldn't make up my mind, and so I wouldn't talk, not even to you, old girl. But this is how it stands. I can't bear to see Mother struggling along with the house, and Robin, and all her worries, trying to satisfy everybody, being snubbed sometimes, and unappreciated. At first I thought I'd give up college. You know I'd intended going in for the Conklin Scholarship, and everyone said I would win it, too. But even so, there would be two more years of study, and I'm not sure I could keep up the pace I've set myself lately. Then I had a talk with Merriweather the other day. Dr. Merriweather is the principal of Hazard's school, which wasn't altogether satisfactory. He doesn't think a fellow gets any good, cramming the way I've been doing, and he intimated that even if I took the examinations next fall and passed them, he wasn't at all sure that he would graduate me. Well, that pretty nearly settled the business. And now this affair at home drives in the last nail. I'm going to quit and take my proper place as the head of the family. But Hazard, I urged, don't you think you ought to consult Mother or some older person first? It's a very grave step for you to take on your own responsibility. And besides, I don't believe Mother will let you be the head of the family. And who would employ you? And what sort of position could you fill? That depends on the acumen of the man to whom I apply returned Hazy, with such an owly look through his big glasses that I really wanted to laugh. You know, Elizabeth, how Uncle George is continually repeating that though he doesn't care for talent in his business, he is willing to pay for brains. I've got them, and I'm going to rent them to him. It's a sacrifice, but I've made up my mind, so there's no use arguing. But you'll wait till the end of the week anyway, dear, I pleaded. Give us that long at least to rent the room. Yes, I'll wait till Saturday, compromised Hazard. We shall have finished the Punic Wars by that time, and I've written a rather stunning outline on the subject I should like to have criticized. But if the room isn't rented by then, I quit. Now remember, Elizabeth, not a word of this to anybody, especially Ernestine. I don't want her to feel that she is in any way responsible for blighting my career. I won't tell, I answered, and so, of course, I haven't. But, oh, I am very much afraid that Hazard is making a mistake. Wednesday, December 3rd. We advertised Mrs. Hudson's room today. It cost a dollar. Ernie wanted to say that we are a refined Christian family with a good table, but Mother would not hear of it, which was lucky, considering the price. When the advertisement was finally ready, Hayes and I took it around to the newspaper office, and the long, shining shafts cast by the electric lights on the wet asphalt, it had been raining, made us feel quite frisky. I would rather be a medieval knight than a girl whose mother keeps a boarding house. But, as Hayes observed, there are diversions in every lot. End of section two. Recording by Colleen McMahon.